Welcome to episode 23 of the podcast History Does You. Today we'll be talking about sea power states and their role in shaping the world, as well as we an interview with Dr. Andrew Lambert, who is a professor at King's College in London. It's a great interview. What we basically do is a tour de France of sea power states from ancient Athens to Carthage to Venice to the British Empire and all these different sea power states that played important roles in sort of shaping the world that we kind of know it today. And I've always been sort of fascinated with sea power and naval power and the thinking behind how states develop naval policy to sort of shape their geopolitical interests, whether it's protecting trade routes or invading foreign lands or protecting ships that are exporting goods, all those sorts of things. And while naval theory, I think, really developed in, I would say, the early 20th century, the late 19th century, really, sea power has always been sort of a dominant feature of empires and a dominant feature of smaller states. One sort of unique about this episode is we kind of look at smaller states that had very powerful navies that had very thriving economies that were centered around trade and interacting with all these different cultures and different areas. And in many ways, those are fascinating states to study because they often had to navigate a complicated geopolitical world with neighbors that often had much powerful armies, such as Carthage, trying to fight against the very powerful Roman Empire, whether it was Venice trying to fight against the very powerful Ottoman Empire. We see all these different examples of sea power states trying to navigate that. In some ways, we're able to, you know, really thrive and we're and had these golden ages of trade and economic prosperity and all that. And then usually they fall either to internal issues or drawn out conflicts against these very powerful empires that sea power states often run into, especially when they try to expand and establish colonies across the world or establish different trade routes, all these sorts of things. So other than that, it's a bit of a longer interview. I hope you enjoy it. I think it's, you know, a great insight into how sea power states have played kind of an important role in the world that we kind of know. So enjoy. On today's episode, we welcome on Dr. Andrew Labert. He is a Lawton Professor of Naval History at King's College in London. He is also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Some of his work includes Franklin, Tragic Hero of Polar Navigation, The Challenge, Britain Against America in the Naval War of 1812, and Sea Power States, which was the winner of the Gilder Lerman Prize for Military History in 2018. So welcome on. Yeah, thank you very much. Pleased to be here. And to begin, what is your favorite part of history, the research and talk about? Why is your favorite and why have you focused so much on maritime history? I think we can roll that backwards. Naval maritime history has always been the core of my work. But what I've tried to do is not to be a specialist in that field and allow the field to constrain my interests. So some of my work has looked at larger questions. The last book about states, about identity. The book about John Franklin, yes, it's a naval maritime subject, but the core of the book is terrestrial magnetic science rather than geographical explanation. And my favorite period really is the, is the period between the, the Napoleonic Wars and the First World War. My original PhD subject was British naval operations in the Baltic during the Crimean War, something that 
the war itself is largely unknown in North America, and, and the war in the Baltic is completely unknown in Britain, despite Britain being one of the primary belligerents. So the other thing I'm very interested in is getting people to think about those issues that don't get onto the headlines. And it was a very contrarian thing to do, to start off by writing about something that nobody else, in all honesty, had heard about. And hopefully, by writing about it, I've made more people think about that aspect of the war uh, and about how the war works in in a wider sense. So it's really about engaging in a debate, which is not just picking up those well-known subjects and going over them again. Modern historians have a tendency to go back to the same old subjects, and then they end up reading about those same old subjects and doing a new updated version of the same old treatment. And that's not what we need. We need to ask better questions. And what are some of the challenges that you have encountered while researching history? The main challenge that I face as a university lecturer is time and the opportunity to actually concentrate on major projects. And I've been fortunate that I've had some odd periods of teaching relief when I've been able to get away and actually spend serious amounts of time working on a single subject. I look back on my PhD as a a golden age when the only things I had to do was earn a living and write a PhD. It's always been more complicated in that sense. I'm very fortunate. I live in London. Um, I can literally see the the major archive that I use at the back window of my house. So in one sense, archival research is not a major problem. Uh, I think for a lot of my colleagues, they're located in places where archives are a long way away. The archival research trip is a kind of massive logistics exercise. Uh, That isn't a problem for me. But yeah, it's time. And if I've been reasonably productive, it's because I haven't spent a lot of time having to pursue research logistics. I've been able to get on with the research. And to get into... Some of the early sea power stage, which we'll be talking about today, which we begin with Athens. Uh, Was Athens one of the first sea power states to kind of develop in her history, really? Yes. What I was looking at in that book was very much about you get different different identities and the states are not all the same. And that if we create this kind of linear idea that all states follow one one after the other and, and they're all essentially the same, we miss something vital. The Athenians managed to create, and it, it's an artificial construction. Sea power states are not how people think about themselves. If you think about where you are, it's a long way from the sea. In Britain, you can't be 100 miles from the sea. It's within a 100 miles drive. And Athens, too, is very much bounded by the ocean and connected to the sea. And they create a state that functions at sea rather than on land. Its primary instrument is a navy, not an army. Its primary economic output is not agriculture or industry. It's trade by sea. And controlling that trade is a weapon of enormous power. And the Athenians develop an alternative because they cannot compete with the regional land power, which is Sparta. And they certainly can't compete with the regional hegemon, which is Persia. So the Persians have a massive navy, they have a massive army, and the only way Athens can hope to compete is to specialize in this asymmetric form of power. And the great battle which decides everything is at Salamis, and the Athenians managed to win that. And that's the transformational moment. We have this bizarre notion in Western civilization that the Battle of Thermopylae is in some way important. It's not. It's a delaying action. 
uh, and they all died. Uh, the battle that matters is Salamis, and it's a naval battle. And the Athenian victory is followed in the following year by the Athenians going across to Asia Minor and wiping out the rest of the Persian fleet. Uh, that's how that war ends. The Persian fleet is destroyed, so the Persian army in Greece cannot be reinforced and is defeated. So it's about creating a new sense of identity, which is not bound up in territory or land or agriculture or, or the output of, of things within the state. And it changes the mindset of, the, of those countries. The Athenians didn't end up with a great school of history and philosophy because they were very concerned with agriculture. This was a great trading commercial metropolis. So people were coming in and out. It was a curious place where you could talk to people from all over the Eastern Mediterranean. You could access new ideas. If you read Herodotus, this is the kind of thing that the Athenians would have been fascinated by. The whole of the world and its history laid out in front of you as a great prose drama in which the central character ends up being your home city. It's written to be read by Athenians because they're engaged in trade. They do want to know how the Egyptians worship their gods. They do not want to know what the great king of Persia is all about. Most of the rest of Greece couldn't care less. And what sorts of characteristics or identity did you kind of notice in your research about Athens that kind of made it into this sort of sea power state? Yeah. Well, I suppose Athens comes onto my onto my list, but the list starts, you could almost read it backwards. It starts by trying to understand the country I do live in. The next place I tried to understand was Venice. And it became clear that all of these things line up. And there's an old list of the great sea powers of history. And whoever writes it puts their own country at the end of it. And the most recent ones were written in America. Um, but I, you know, I start somewhere else. So once I'd got a, a clear understanding of how I thought Britain and Venice operated, I was then looking for other states that functioned like that. Athens was obvious. And the key was finding how the Athenians developed these ideas. They didn't invent this. They didn't invent warships. They didn't invent ideas of using navies strategically. They didn't invent dynamic, expansive maritime economies. They picked all of those ideas up and then created a state out of them. So for the Athenians, inventive in the sense of their ability to combine the ingredients. They don't invent them, but they pick the various things up and turn them into something which is really powerful. Because unlike the previous sea powers, they were able to operate as an independent state. Much of their practice, their thinking, even their language and many of their words are Phoenician. They're harvesting what the Phoenicians have created on the edge of the Eurasian landmass under the, the hegemony of large continental powers, but they're able to operate independently. And this is what makes them into a truly independent sea power state. And they create a great empire to fund that state because sea powers are not capable of functioning without their empires. You need this empire of trade, an ocean empire of trading hubs, resources and revenues. And it's the Athenian navy which gives you control of that. And that control provides the money which pays for the navy. So it's a virtuous circle. Empires work, sea empires work by controlling trade and using the profits, pay for the naval security, which enables the profits to be made in the first place. And you then end up with a political leadership which sees the sea, the navy and trade as central to their interests and therefore their identity. And they then represent that culturally. They build monuments which say, look at us, we're different. The sea is more important than the land. If you stand on the Acropolis and you look out to sea, you've been to the Acropolis? I have not. 
Ah, well, it's uh, it's one of those things you must do. As you leave the, the Parthenon complex of the Acropolis and you stand at the top of the stairs to walk back down into the city, the whole thing is designed so that your view is the battlefield of Salamis. You can see where the Athenians won the great battle that gave them the power and the money to build this enormous religious civic complex. So it's all about empire of the sea. Even this building, which we think of as a, as a temple, it serves many other functions. The Athenians don't build temples unless they can use them as navigational beacons. The great statue of Pallas Athene can be seen from miles away, and that's a navigational homing beacon. You can see the tip of Athene's spear. You can set a course for Athens. So English churches on the coast of the, of the United Kingdom, almost all of them have tall spires to be used as navigational beacons. You can see where you're going. Uh, the great buildings of Venice, the great Campanile, you can see it from a long way away. It's a homing beacon. And maritime societies put these things up and make them very important. And did this sort of pursuit of power and this creation of an Athenian empire bring it into conflict with other Greek city-states as well as other regional powers as well? Yes, very much so. The whole point of Athens creating an empire was that it was unable to rival Sparta as a military power. Uh, and it was creating an alternative to that. And as Thucydides puts it, the whole cause of the Peloponnesian War is, is the fear and anxiety of Sparta that the rising wealth and political democratic agendas of Athens will overturn their power and lead to their downfall. So they're frightened of this dynamic, aggressive economic competitor. And people even today are using this as a metaphor for modern conflicts. The, I, I find the idea that uh, the People's Republic of China is a modern Athens somewhat laughable, but fear and anxiety of hegemonic powers for like, about rising competitors, it is a very old trope. Yes, and it did alienate a lot of other Greek city-states, large and small. The small ones that were inside the empire quite often didn't like being there, and the larger ones found Athens increased power uh, to be really very difficult to deal with. And if you watch the Peloponnesian War unfold, you see states changing sides because they realize that actually if the Athenians win, they're not going to be independent anymore. So it's dynamic, it's aggressive, it's economically driven, and it's upsetting the whole social basis of Greek society. Thucydides himself, an Athenian general in the Peloponnesian War, says this is very powerful, but it's also I'm not sure that it's the right thing. We sh should we be doing this? So the Peloponnesian War asked two big questions. Why did the Athenians lose? And what would have happened if they'd won? And the answer is, uh, it might not have been as good as you think. So yes, the Athenians made a lot of enemies because as Thucydides points out at the crisis of the book, when we get to the Sicilian expedition, they became overbearingly arrogant. At the top end of their power, they believed they could do anything and they weren't prepared to compromise. And they used extreme levels of violence, the famous Melian dialogue. The Athenians say, look, you, Milos is an island. You belong to us because all islands are in our empire. You've revolted. You take the punishment. And it's a piece of writing that lives right the way through into modern international relations theory. You know, how do you operate in these kinds of systems? So, yes, the Athenians made a lot of enemies. Any state that changes the way the world operates makes enemies because the status quo suits an awful lot of people and novelty suits far less. And did the Peloponnesian War kind of bring about an end to Athens as a true sea power? And did its defeat raise questions about naval power being a tool 
of foreign policy, so to say? Yes, it did. Without its empire, Athens was never going to be a great power. And the whole problem after the Peloponnesian War is that Athens never recovers its empire. So while it still has all the same interests, maritime trade, uh, it still has a significant navy, harbours, and even politically, it retains all of the structures, but it doesn't have that huge resource base of imperial control. So there's never the money. And it's not the Athenians' agenda or their interests. It's really 101 economics. They don't have the cash to be a great maritime empire. And of course, a lot of people don't want to join their empire the second time around because they didn't enjoy it the first time. So Athens is ends up becoming a place where you can go and engage with the culture that the great Athenian empire created. Uh, right down into the, the middle Roman period, Athens was a place you needed to go. It's a cultural landmark. But it's not a great power anymore. And that was the agenda of the Spartans and the Persians in the Peloponnesian War. And the winners of the Peloponnesian War are the Persians. Everybody forgets this. It's their money. It's their agenda. And by the time the Spartans have messed up uh, the whole of Greece by their overbearing behavior, Greece is pretty much neutralized. And the Persians can get on with what they really want to do, which is to control a very large, multi-ethnic, continental, territorial empire. And to kind of get into the other ancient sea power state that you talked about, which was Carthage. What contrast do you we see with Carthage as opposed to kind of Rome, who they fought against a lot, who was more of a land power? This is the ultimate clash of, of civilizations between two fundamentally different views of what power means. So Rome, central Italian, terrestrial, expansive, militarily aggressive, dominated by concerns for land extension of land. And Carthage, which was created as basically a, you know, a freeway service station halfway between Tyre on the, co- on the coast of the Levant and Cadiz on the south coast of Spain as part of the world's first essentially intercontinental resource extraction project. It breaks away when Tyre is essentially crushed by the Assyrians and it loses its independence. And it becomes a state, but Carthage... It, never has any territory. People look at Carthage and they say, it's on the coast of North Africa. What territories does it have? The answer is none. It's a big city with no territory outside the city walls. All of the rest of the the territory in modern-day Tunisia is owned by local rulers. The Carthaginians literally only own the city. The rest of it, their empire, is on the sea. They have outposts in, in the south of Spain, in Sicily, in Sardinia, along the coast, but these it's an empire of trade. It's an empire of the sea and of trade. It doesn't even have its own native army. The Carthaginian army, including elephants, they're all imported. At most of Hannibal's great battles, the only Carthaginians around him were a, f- a very few officers and a few senior leaders and logisticians and diplomats. Almost all of his fighting troops were Spaniards, Frenchmen, Northern Italian people from the Alps, Numidians, Libyans. They were not Carthaginians. There weren't enough Carthaginians to fight these battles. So it's not a military power of any significance at all. It's naval power, not a military power. What it wants is a peaceful, stable, balanced world system in which it can continue trading. It doesn't want to rule more territory. It wants access to markets. It's a modern, free-trading, globally active state. It looks a bit like Singapore with a big army of mercenaries. It doesn't look like any great modern state. 
You know, it's tiny physically. It's tiny in terms of human resources. And Hannibal doesn't invade Rome from Carthage. He comes from Spain because that's where all his troops come from. He didn't march from Spain to Rome to be awkward or to avoid the sea or any other clever thing. He couldn't have gone any other way. He had a big army of Spanish troops and he marched through France and recruited French troops and then entered Italy. So it's fundamentally different. Rome has an army of, in this period, the Roman Republic, they have a very large army of well-disciplined, free soldiers. These are agricultural workers. These are what we might call peasants. And they are the backbone of the Roman army. It's a very large, well-manned, well-organized, disciplined army. The object of the Roman army is the conquest of territory, and their battle tactics are to wipe out the enemy, and their strategic plan is to wipe out the enemy. So Carthage is attacked not because it's threatening Rome. It can't. It has no army. You can't march on Rome with ships. It's attacked because it's trying. it controls the grain of Sicily, which the Romans want. It also controls the resources of Sardinia, which the Romans want. So it's a war about resources. It's not a war about the Carthaginians trying to destroy Rome. Even when Hannibal defeats the Romans at Cannae, he doesn't march on Rome. He tries to build an alliance with other contemporary major powers, the Macedonians, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, to try and restrain Rome as a normal state within a multipolar world order. We end up very shortly with the Romans in the same position the United States was in in the 1990s, a a unipolar world, one clearly dominant superpower state and all the others at a lower regional level. And that that is what Hannibal's trying to prevent. He's not trying to destroy Rome. He's trying to make Rome just like all the other major powers. And that's why the Romans fear him, because if he gets away with this, Rome will be stuck in central Italy. And they've now got a taste for expansion. And it's a war where we see the use of extreme levels of propaganda. So the Carthaginians are written off to history by the Romans. Uh, Allegedly, they sacrificed their children. There's all kinds of other horrible Roman stories about the Carthaginians. There's no concrete evidence that any of them are true. So this is rather like the parts of the Second World War, where we find the enemies utterly dehumanized by propaganda. In the Pacific, both the Japanese and the Americans portrayed each other as, as either inhuman or subhuman, or in some way not to be treated in the same way as normal human beings. Uh, you find this on, in the Eastern Front on the, the Nazi-Soviet war. The enemy is, is dehumanized and can be com- killed without compunction. It's the same in the, in the Punic Wars, particularly the Third. The Third is a war of absolute annihilation. The whole purpose is to destroy Carthage utterly and to wipe its memory off the face of the earth, which the Romans very nearly did. And what do the Punic Wars kind of tell us about sea power states in the ancient world? The Punic Wars tell us ultimately that when a great continental military power is able to focus all of its efforts, it will defeat a sea power state. It has far greater resources. The Romans are able to burn through several armies just to contain Hannibal. And then they raise another army and invade Spain. And then they raise another army and invade North Africa. They have the resources, the military resources, financial resources, and the political will to destroy the enemy. And they will put up with defeats. Soviet Union, Second World War, how many million Russians died defeating Nazi Germany? 20 million. Was it worth it? They seem to think so. They can have a victory parade despite COVID-19, even this year. So continental states view the world differently. It's about territory. It's about control. It's about imposing your control over the territory. 
And the CPAS state looks very differently. It wants access to your markets and it's prepared to use a bit of violence to get that, but isn't going to try and take over your country because it's just too difficult and too expensive. So two very different worldviews. And that pattern just endlessly repeats. The great continental hegemons always have a problem with CPAS states because they're putting forward a political agenda, which is a challenge. So one of the great ironies of the 20th century is that the, the ultimate continental power of the 20th century ends up being the United States, which has a Western liberal democratic model. This is unusual. To do this, the United States would normally have ended up becoming a military autocracy or a monarchical autocracy or some form of autocratic government. Simply in order to hold this very large structure together, it would have, it would have been difficult to run a, a liberal democratic system. But communications technology means that as the United States expands, it's able to maintain its democratic structures, railways and, and telegraph cables, you know, make it possible to do this. And there's a very strong you know, Anglo-Dutch liberal political influence on the United States structures. So we end up with a state which has a very powerful sea power culture in its politics, but it ends up having a very strong continental culture in the way it, it views power and identity. Um, so it's something slight, slightly schizophrenic in, in the makeup of the United States. But then all, all states have their, their internal contradictions. But that's a very strong one. This, this whole idea, right back to foundation, the way the state works, it, it echoes a lot of things which are coming out of very different, small, in fact, tiny little European states which can operate these systems. And making it work in the United States has been a, a huge project. And to kind of move on to Venice, which was another sea power state, how did kind of Venice sort of develop into a sea power state? Yeah. The Venetians, unique in the whole of Italy, their city was created after the fall of the Roman Empire. All the other great cities of Italy, there were towns there when, when the Romans were in charge. And they're not part of the Western Roman tradition. So their initial loyalties are to the Byzantine Empire. And if you go to Venice into the Basilica San Marco, this is a Byzantine church. It is, it's got nothing to do with Western Roman architecture. It's a Byzantine building which belongs in Istanbul. It's a different tradition. Its walls are covered in elaborate high drama mosaic put in by Byzantine craftsmen. So it's an outstation from the east, and it's the connecting point between the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western world. And as the Eastern Roman Empire shrinks, it's replaced as its main trading partner in the east by the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt and ultimately by the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And Venice is operating between two separate worlds. It's the place where, where goods and ideas are exchanged. It becomes the center of the study of ancient Greek language and literature because that's the place where the Greek diaspora ended up after the fall of Constantinople. It's a place where those things that the Athenians were doing become important, mass-producing ships. How the Venetians learned to mass-produce galleys? They studied what the Athenians did. Where? In Greek texts. How did they find them? From Byzantium. So the Greeks have this legacy, and it comes through to Venice, through Byzantium, uh, they still have those, those materials under their control. But Venice takes, as all these states do, it takes a conscious decision to turn to the sea. You don't just happen to have a maritime identity. People don't live at sea. They live on the land. We live in units called families and, and villages or towns or cities. You know, We belong to extended families, 
you might call them tribes, groups, whatever. We have loyalties, all of which are terrestrial. Even seafarers have homes on land. You know, the only people who live at sea work on oil rigs and cruise liners. Of course, nobody works on cruise liners anymore uh, this year. But you know, a maritime identity is a created identity. It's not a natural identity. You know, I'm currently sitting in the place I identify as home. It's not a ship. It's, it's a house. Uh, most people do that. So that's a conscious decision. And the Venetians take that decision. And like the Athenians and like the Carthaginians, they do that because that is the only way of making the most of the advantages they've got and minimizing their disadvantages. They're stuck on a rather unpleasant mud bank off the northwest coast of Italy. They might as well go to sea. They're not going to become great agriculturalists. They've got no land. Now, if you walk about Venice, there's no roads, there are no horses. In fact, it's illegal to own a horse in Venice. The paths are far too narrow. You grow up maritime. You go to, you go everywhere by boat. And, and they just make a virtue of that. And they become an enormously powerful commercial operation with a very effective naval element. But their army, like the army of Carthage and the parts of the army of Athens, is a mercenary army. The Venetian army is Italian, but it's not Venetian. The Venetians pay for it, but the, the foot soldiers come from the rest of Italy. And if the Venetians lose their army, they don't mind. They just don't have to pay them if they're dead. And they just go and buy another one. And at the height of its power, Venice could pay for as much army as it liked. And if it lost it, just bought another one. So it's a completely different model. And it's a model that you will see right across the Sea States, finding a way of generating power when you need it, which does not involve creating a large landed aristocracy and a military elite. And what sorts of challenges did Venice face in its quest to become a sea power state? The main problem for Venice is it has to control critical trades in order to maximize profit. So the key trades for the Venetians are in Asian luxuries, spices, fabrics, and precious metals, which are making a very long journey, in some cases from China, all the way through along the Silk Road, through to Byzantium, to Istanbul, and to Cairo. And the key to their trade was that they were almost always able to find at least two supply routes. So their, their great days as a maritime empire coincide with a period when the Mameluk sultans ran Egypt and the Byzantine emperors were still in Constantinople. And they could basically haggle over the price of their supplies, which were coming through both centers. And as long as there were two separate sellers for those spices and luxuries, the Venetians could put the, the cost down, push the price up, make a lot of money and keep their navy going. The Ottoman Empire, around 1500, finally takes over Egypt. So there is now a, a universal monolithic Ottoman state which controls all of the trade in luxuries, and they can tell the Venetians what the price is, not the other way around. So it's a fundamental blow to their whole economic structure from which they never recover. And gradually, Venice's power declines, and the Venetians end up building a significant landholding in northern Italy. So the irony is, the last days of Venice, it's actually a very large northern Italian state with large agricultural lands and a large amount of industry. The city of Venice becomes an industrial center, making fabrics. It's the world leader in scientific and high-grade glassmaking, 
cloth. It really is a very, very productive place. And it remains dynamic, successful economically, right down to the day Napoleon destroyed it. But it wasn't a great power after about 1570. But that, again, was conscious. The Venetians could see what had happened to the Carthaginians and the Athenians because they'd read all the books. And they just took a step back and said, we're not going to compete at that level anymore. The Turks and the Spaniards are too strong. They're too powerful. They've got too much money. We can't fight them anymore. Let's just step back and find a space where we can continue making money, but we don't have to keep fighting. That was kind of my last question, so I'll skip it. In the kind of early modern period was sea power starting to become more important as a result of increasing trade and maritime activity, not just in the Mediterranean, but across Europe? Yeah. Trading volumes key indicator. So you don't get Athens without an expansion of, of trade in the ancient world. You don't get Venice without a trade which is going to generate enough money to make it worth your while to operate that imperial structure. And remember that the, the Venetians had an empire. It was an empire of islands that stretched from Venice through places like uh, Corfu, down the coast of Greece, uh, across the Great Islands, uh, Crete, Cyprus, and all the way down to Alexandria. So as the world of commerce expands, when the Portuguese round Africa and the Spanish go to America, there's more trade. There are more opportunities. There's more places where you can use sea power. And it explodes out of the Mediterranean and you start to get contests for control of the seas between the Dutch and the Portuguese in what is now Indonesia. Uh, you get the, the English and the Dutch contesting Spanish control of the Caribbean. So all of a sudden, sea power as a strategy is more attractive and sea power as an agenda becomes more potent. And ultimately, two of the smaller, weaker northern European states uh, end up using it, much as the Venetians had, to basically leverage their lack of size and, and human capital into something positive. And were there kind of different characteristics that we see with the Dutch and Portuguese in their pursuit of becoming sea powers? And do we see some sort of similarities between Venice and these two sea power states? Yeah, I think the one of the things I was doing in the book is when you look at the Portuguese, most of the classic lists of the great sea power states include Portugal and Spain. And this for me is, is not accurate. To be a sea power, which is a word Thucydides uses and Herodotus as well, one word, Thelasocratia, you have to be wrapped up in the sea. It's not about having a navy or ships. It's about having a maritime naval identity, which is linked to your economy, which is linked to your trading patterns and your empire. So Thucydides, for example, speaks always of Athens as a sea power. He talks of several other smaller Greek city-states as being sea powers. They maximize the sea. But the biggest navy in this period is the Persian navy. It's five times bigger than the Athenian navy. But Persia is not a sea power. It's a land power with a big navy. And if you want to know what the difference is, today, the world's biggest navy in real terms is the United States Navy. But that's only the third most important of its fighting services in terms of budget and size. The United States is a continental military power that happens to have a big navy. Um, the United Kingdom today, um, its navy is its primary service, very much more significant than its other two services, because it is a maritime power. It's a small maritime trading nation, which has a global view because of its smallness and, and lack of 
volume. The British have to trade to get their food. The United States is interested in exporting food. The British are necessarily interested in importing it because we have too many people and not enough agricultural land. So we have a different political model, and that's really important. So sea powers are self-created. Portugal is not a sea power because despite going all the way to Asia and creating a very large empire, the whole point of the Portuguese empire was to raise money for a continental crusade. In the 50, early 1580s, the king of Portugal, Dom Sebastian, used all the money that Portugal had ever made running an empire in Asia and bits of Africa. And he raised a huge army and he landed on the coast of Morocco, which he was going to conquer because Morocco had grain and resources, which would have given Portugal a major boost. And what he discovered was that the Moroccans didn't wish to be part of the Portuguese empire. They slaughtered him and his army. And that was the end of Portugal as a major power. So the Portuguese agenda was never the sea. The sea was a vehicle to an end. And the same with Spain. The Spanish came to the Americas to make money. And the seas were an awkward and unpleasant problem between metropolitan Spain and the new world where the, where the goods were coming from. It's not part of Spanish culture. And it's not as much part of Portuguese culture as people imagine. If you go to Madrid, you are in the geographical center of Iberia. You couldn't be further from the sea if you know, it's not possibly further from the sea than the dead center of Madrid, outside the old post office. And that tells us something. The Spanish could have put their capital on the coast. They didn't. When Philip II ruled Portugal and Spain, he could have moved his capital to Lisbon. His mother was Portuguese, so he, he had every opportunity. He didn't. It's a terrestrial, continental power. What did the Spanish use all that American money for? To fight wars in Europe to fight the Ottoman Turks, to fight the French, uh, to fight the heretics in Germany. That's what they used it for. And above all, to fight the Dutch. So these bigger powers, when they get control of the sea, they don't use it in the way that sea power states do. They use it to maximize their strategic reach and resource extraction, but they don't use it to create maritime empires because that's not interesting. If you have a vast continental empire, the sea is a bit of a nuisance. And meanwhile, there was, you mentioned briefly mentioned Russia. Did Peter the Great kind of change attitudes in Russia towards sea power? And was he kind of successful in doing this? Peter is fascinating. I, I put that, that chapter in there because I wanted to show what continental powers do with the sea. And Russia is the, the best possible example because the Russian example has repeated itself ever since Peter the Great. Somebody in Russia thinks it's a good idea to have a big navy and look at the sea. And when they die, it all comes down in ruins. And then somebody else picks it up and plays with it again. Putin is it. He's a fan of Peter the Great. And he grew up in St. Petersburg, so he's, he's a bit more sea-minded than some Russians. Peter's project is a massive territorial expansion of Russia to extend Russia's strategic boundaries on land into regions like the Black Sea, the Caucasus, Western Europe, into Poland, into Finland. So he's about expanding Russia as a great power. And his navy is the seaward arm of his offensive into the West. And his navy's primary role is to support the movement of his army along the coasts of the Baltic states, what is now modern Poland, into eastern Germany, into Finland, also to extend against the Ottoman Empire into the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. So it's very much the support for a military conquest and the occupation of territory. And yes, Peter put a huge effort into trying to make the Russians see the sea because no Russians thought the sea was of any consequence at all. 
because until Peter came along, they hadn't had a coast for a couple of hundred years. So they had no notion of the sea. You know, they knew as much of the sea as a jackrabbit in the middle of the US. You know, they'd, they'd never seen it and knew nothing of it and cared less for it. The sea has never been at the heart of Russian culture. And when the Russians think about the sea, they think about it in a somewhat apocalyptic vein. They see the sea as the source of the last great wave that will wash away all humanity, a tradition they've got from the Orthodox Church. So Peter is is pushing against the grain of Russian history. And he's so powerful and so effective that at the time of his death, Russia has a big navy. There's a capital city, which is wide open to the sea, a massive fortress in front of it to protect it. And within a couple of years of his death, the capital city is not St. Petersburg, it's Moscow. The navy is a ruin. And when they need a navy again in the 1780s, they have to repeat what Peter did, which is to go and get a lot of foreign mercenaries and foreign experts to come in and rebuild the navy for them. Uh, and this happens again in the 19th century. And it happens again in the 1930s when they got the Italians in to help them rebuild the navy. Um, there's something about you know, Russia is never going to generate that long permanent tradition of activity at sea. If the United States has managed to keep up a serious professional navy for 200 odd years. That's that's pretty good going. The Russians haven't. Their navy has crashed and burned badly several times in that period because the sea just doesn't make it onto the Russians' list of things that matter. Just It just isn't there and it's never going to be there. The Russian Empire at its largest was an entirely continental empire. You could walk from one end to the other. What do you need the navy for? You know, so the Venetian Empire, you couldn't go anywhere without a ship. A completely different worldviews, imperial models, and resource bases. Why would you build a fleet to conquer something when you could just march people into it and you've got lots of people to spare? And to kind of get into the British Empire, which was the last sea power state that you mentioned, how did Britain kind of develop into this sea power state? The British, and of course, it's important, I think, to say that this is an English empire, not a British empire. It's an empire built on models that the English have established before the union with Scotland and before the integration of Ireland into the United Kingdom in the, in the 17th century. Those parts of the United Kingdom come on board to an extent, but they're, they're never fully signed up to the project. The foundation myth of the English worldview is the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. Scotland was an independent country, and Ireland was certainly not under English control then. So 1588 means nothing in either of those parts of what was the United Kingdom. It's an English story. It's not a, a British story. What happens is the British, the English, realize around 1500, 1520, that England is too small and too weak to be a major European player. Henry VIII makes one last effort to conquer northern France. He fails, and halfway through his reign, he has to abolish the Catholic Church, close down the monasteries, and ransack all of the resources of the Catholic Church to build a navy and some coast defenses to keep the Catholics out. And the Royal Navy is built by Henry VIII to defend England from a Catholic reconquest. Having built a navy and taken command of the local region, uh, under Elizabeth, the navy is used much more aggressively to spread English trade, uh, quite a lot of piracy too, and to extend into other territories. And you see the first uh, English landing on the coast of North America at Roanoke. But that's a failed project. The great project of the Elizabethan era is survival in the face of the hegemonic power of, of the Habsburg Spanish Empire. It's only really 100 years later, in 1688, when the English change their constitutional structure and go for a constitutional monarchy with the king's powers being limited by parliament and the creation of economic levers, which will enable them to fund a very powerful navy 
a national debt, a national bank, and they create a political structure in which the landed aristocracy, the great wealth of the city of London, the commercial wealth of trade and of capital and investment, is all tied into the state. So everybody now has a stake in a maritime imperial project. Landed interests are invested in it, and they provide leadership. The city merchants and bankers that provide the capital and draw the profits. And that money is used in 1690 to build a whole new navy, to destroy the French fleet, which happens in 1692, and to extend British power into the Mediterranean, which breaks up Louis XIV's project for a revived Roman Empire. And it's keeping that system in balance, keeping the merchants happy to pay for the navy by giving them trading opportunities and opening up new markets that ultimately generates the British version of a sea power imperial state. And the model the British establish moves from European waters out into North America, into Africa, into Asia, and it ends up creating a whole separate empire in what is now India. And it's an empire entirely based on the sea. The British are never really engaged anywhere outside a couple of days' march from the coast if they can possibly avoid it because they don't have the manpower to do that. So the British Empire is completely unlike other contemporary empires. It's not about land. It's not about agriculture. It's about commerce. And at short, around this time, around 1700, the British sign a treaty with the Portuguese, which basically gives them the job of running Portugal's overseas empire, running the finances. The British buy most of Portugal's produce. Uh, they take on board most of the gold the Portuguese get out of Brazil, and they provide the Portuguese with security because Lisbon is the naval base they use to control Spain. So the British creating a model in which the, le the power is naval, the strength is financial, and this is a model that allows the British to fight these very long wars of economic endurance. So we start 1688, 1697, the Nine Years' War. Then we get the War of the Spanish Succession, which lasts for 11 years. And then we get a four-year war in North America and in Europe. Then we get the Seven Years' War. There's a pattern emerging. The British win by grinding down the economies of their rivals. They don't defeat their armies. They bankrupt them. So... The French Ancien Regime was destroyed by its own financial weaknesses, which were exacerbated by fighting the much richer British. And the British didn't fight with British soldiers. They hired Germans. You know, your War, your war of Independence stories about Hessians. But why did the British have lots of German guys doing their fighting for them? Because they left the British guys at home making money. If you were a serious, adventurous Brit, you joined the Navy, not the Army. You know, the Army was for dumb plowboys, probably Germans. It was not for bright, intelligent, dynamic people. So the British used the Navy as their number one instrument, like all the great sea power empires, Navy, Navy, Navy. And once you've got that instrument, you can control trade, you can destroy rival economies, and you can ruin countries just by stopping their trade. And the British did this to pretty much all of their rivals all the way through the period from the 1700s through to the Second World War. You know, that's Britain's primary weapon. It's not It's not even the fighting force of the Navy. It's the Navy's ability to destroy the economy. And do you think that British sea power kind of helped keep kind of peace in Europe after the Napoleonic Wars up until the two world wars? Well, the thing that all sea power empires want most is a peaceful, stable, balanced order, be it regional, global, international. Europe had been for many centuries the center of 
tension. And yes, the British used the peace process uh, at the Congress of Vienna to shape a European system that would balance out the ambitions of France to recover its power, the bits that Napoleon had given them, that would keep the Russians out of Western Europe. And he, the British used the Austrians and the Prussians to neutralize France, to balance off Russia, and basically to set up a system which managed to preserve the peace more or less uh, for decade after decade. Why did they do that? Because fighting the French between 1793 and 1815 left them with the most enormous pile of debt that any country in the world had ever seen. And so the whole of the 19th century, the British spent paying off the costs of fighting Napoleon and the French wars. And the small bit, obviously, fighting the Americans in 1812 too. But primarily, it's, it's a French war debt. And a lot of that debt was money given to allies to fight the French on land. You know, Napoleon wasn't defeated at Trafalgar. He wasn't there. He'd had nothing to do with that. He was defeated at Leipzig by an enormous army of Russians, Prussians, and Austrians who were eating their way through millions of English pounds even then. That's how Napoleon was defeated. You know, by The British kept him in Europe, and the Europeans eventually decided to get rid of him with an awful lot of help from the British. Uh, and it's deeply ironic that the last great battle of this era is at Waterloo, and the British are in charge. That was not the plan. You know, that was not what the British wanted. They wanted the Europeans to fight that battle. Uh, but they, the Russians and Austrians were never going to get there in time. And the British were able to get the troops into Belgium and, and win that battle. But again, Napoleon wasn't marching to conquer Belgium. He was marching to reopen the great port city of Antwerp as a naval base to threaten the British. So it's a very British victory. The British then create various versions of a state around what is now Belgium, essentially just to keep the French out. You know, Belgium is a project of the British because we don't care who rules this place as long as it's not the French. So initially we gave it to the Dutch. The Belgians and the Dutch don't get on very well. So in 1830, the British spent the next nine years creating a, a Belgium that would be neutral and independent. And that's the Belgium that caused the First World War when the Germans crossed the frontier. Britain was legally obliged to defend Belgium, as indeed were the Belgians and the French and the Russians and the Austrians and the Germans. Uh, but the Germans and the Austrians broke the, broke the treaty. And that's the famous scrap of paper, the Treaty of London of 1839. And it's a sea power treaty. It preserves the balance of power in Europe. So the British are using their diplomacy, their money, their power, and whatever form it takes to keep Europe in balance. The fear of all sea power states is the emergence of a great hegemonic dominant empire, a Persian empire, a Roman empire, a Habsburg or an Ottoman Empire, Louis XIV's attempt to become the hegemon in the early 18th century, Napoleon's successful hegemonic bid, and then the attempts of the Germans under two different systems in the 20th century to become a, a continentally dominant hegemon and to focus all their efforts from there on taking down the sea power state. Because once you've achieved continental hegemony, you can move your resources to sea and you can take out these pesky islanders. And all of these continental hegemons tried it, Philip II, Louis XIV, Napoleon, they all tried it. And the success of the British model was that all the way through that period, the British were able to, to meet that challenge, even at enormous cost. But ultimately, the last great war, the Second World War, was, was one war too many. And the British didn't just rack up debt. They actually ran out of money, credit, capital, everything. They maxed out everything. Um, they were like the odd student at the end of the third year. They, they just got nothing left at all. And they owed a lot of money to 
one of their peer competitors at the United States and just dropped out of the, the business. Rather like the Venetians and the Dutch, they decided they just couldn't sit at the top table anymore and, and be a great power in the age of superpowers. There was no money left. They'd spent it. The world is probably a better place for that um, because if the British hadn't spent all their money, who knows who would be in charge today? Uh, the world would look very different. Uh, if the Germans had won either of the world wars. So there's a long history here, but it's a history with patterns, not perfect repeating patterns, but there's a pattern here between these two different worldviews, maritime and continental, the sea and the land, and the political structures that they generate and the ways in which they've shaped the culture uh, that we all live with. And any of these cities and states that have been sea power states, they tell you something different to their peer competitors. If you're in Amsterdam, you're in a very different city to other Dutch cities inland. It's a unique and different city. It's consciously echoing Venice. The canals of Amsterdam are there because they want to make it look like Venice. There weren't canals there naturally. They're all artificial and they're built to make a reference point. Peter the Great does this in St. Petersburg. It's got canals for no purpose other than to look like Amsterdam and Venice. So it's it becomes a fashion statement. It becomes a style icon. It has a very close connection with the development of many forms of Western culture. Not all. And to ask some concluding questions, do you see any sea power states that exist today or do you think that concept has kind of fallen off? What I think what I want, want to really say about that is sea power states that are great powers, that are peer competitors with other great powers of their era, that's over. The great superpowers of the modern age are very large terrestrial coherent states. They're empires, but they're not maritime empires. You know, anybody who thinks China is a country has not studied either geography or, or ethnology. China is, is no more a country than the British Empire was. It's a multi, multi-faith, multi-identity project, which is being run from the centre by a particular clique. In this case, it's not a, a royal clique, it's a political clique, but that's it. Uh, Russia is the same. It, it's a very large empire even trimmed of many of its external portions after the end of the Soviet Union. It's an empire. And the United States, its scope and its extent have a very imperial look to it. You know, a country that stretches halfway around the world, that's, that tends to look a bit like an empire. Hawaii doesn't look like a natural part of uh, the US of America. And of course, the American imperial model, again, is a different one. It's, in one sense, it takes off from the British model in being an economic empire. America's power is, is, is economic, it's, it's, it's cultural reach, it's, it's economic reach. And that's one of the things that the British and Americans contested in the early 20th century, who was going to be running the informal empires of trade and power in places like South America and the Middle East, uh, who was going to get their hands on the oil. So a state which is small and asymmetrically weak, is never going to have the resources to compete with these vast continental hegemons. Then they are never going to be maritime because it's just an incoherent idea that you could transform the United States or China or indeed Russia into a maritime power. They're too big and and too powerful for that to be a relevant criteria. It's asymmetric. You get an advantage from it if you're small and weak. It doesn't give you anything if you're big and strong. You, by all means, have a big professional navy, but turning your country into a maritime state isn't going to give you anything. So the world is full of sea power states. They're just not great powers. So Britain, Holland, Singapore, fairly obvious ones, uh, South Korea, Japan, these are all sea power states. 
they all have significant naval force. They all do very large amounts of trade by sea. They all see the world in ways that large continental countries don't. If you're in the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing, the world is is a place you wish to dominate, but you don't wish to have too much contact with it because people in China might ask why they don't have democracy, unlike the people in Hong Kong up to now. Two of the three great continental imperial powers of the early 21st century are not democratic. Uh, They're authoritarian one-party states uh, with different forms of political uh, control. Uh, The United States is different, but that's what makes it so interesting. How come it survived like this? Why doesn't it look more like Russia and China or Imperial Persia or the Roman Empire? And of course, the founding fathers were looking at the Roman Republic and saying, this is a really good idea. We should have one of these. But what happened to the Roman Republic? It was overthrown by Romans and became the Roman Empire. And you know, you've had quite a few generals as presidents who just might have decided to become emperors. You know, there, are, there have been emperors in the Americas. There was an emperor in Mexico and one in Brazil for a very long time. So... That's not going to happen. But I think the thing that matters in all of this is probably less the state question than the identity question. And the West, not a geographical West, but the liberal, democratic, free trading, open society, Western world is the heir of those sea power states and the clash it has with China. And that's the clash in which the United States is on the side of the West and the sea power states, even if it isn't on itself. Uh, That's about the ideas, the identities and the values that have been created over the last 3000 years. And that's human progress. We didn't progress by building continental autarkic empires and shutting the book, shutting the barriers and preserving coherence. The Chinese empire was taken to pieces in the second half of the 19th century because it had refused to engage with the rest of the world. Not because it wasn't powerful, it was still the largest and most powerful country on earth in human and resource terms, but it was simply ignored everybody else. West, the sea power states never did that. They were always at the cutting edge technologically, intellectually. They were the ones that came up with the new ways of doing things. And they were the ones that challenged the established order. And that challenge is the dynamism of history. And overall, what influence do you think that sea power states have had on world history? You've got two choices if you're looking at history. Either you look at a history of stasis or of change. I'm not saying progress, because progress is a slightly very loaded word which begs the question of what the alternative to progress is. But change, things have moved because sea power states have hooked things up. They've changed the ways we see the world. They've changed the ways we live, the ways we dress, the way we eat. They've changed the gods we pray to or or not. They've made things happen. They've made it possible. Without sea power states, we would live in a very, very different world. And we've made far less progress from the days of the Battle of Salamis um, than we have. Not all that progress is good. There have been some, some very bad things that have happened along the way, but we're only human. But if you want to know why the world moves, it moves because places that are sea powers don't accept stasis. They're constantly looking for an edge. Every time somebody comes up with a new way of doing something like, hey, we're doing now, you know, electronic communication halfway around the world. That's a classic sea power response. All the world's great communication systems came out of sea powers. The British Empire came up with cable, submarine telegraph cable, which created the world's first global communications network for trade. The British were the first to use ultra-efficient global wireless nets system in the in the 1820s. World Wide Web was created by an Englishman. You know, global communications, high-speed, reliable communications, 
that's a classic sea power product. You don't need them in Ming, China, because everybody knows their place. Nobody's going anywhere. And you pay your taxes year on year unchangingly. And it doesn't matter how many generations live on this farm. You still pay the same taxes to the same in the same imperial treasury. That doesn't happen with sea power states. You change, things change. And with that change, we end up with a world where I was talking to somebody in India the other day. In England, our national dish is curry. That's You ask an Englishman what he wants for dinner, it's probably a curry. And if you ask an Indian what his national sport is, it's cricket. They're obsessed with cricket and we're obsessed with well, cricket and curry, I guess. So we've even taken our, our games around the world. Who invented football? Well, the English did. Cricket, uh, the English. Rugby, that would be the English too. Golf, the Scots. So even things that we don't associate with, with the great affairs of, of the world, um, they end up moving for the same reason. Why do the Brazilians play football? Well, the Portuguese did, and that's how the world works. Why are the Argentines good at football? Because a lot of the immigrants to Argentina were Italians. And my final question is, how do you see sea power's role in the world over kind of the next decade and just in the general in the future? The, the big questions that are looming now is, is how the world deals with the ambitions of China. This is the fault line. Just as 120 years ago, you'd have said, how do we deal with Imperial Germany? What do the Chinese want? What will the cost be to all of us outside China if they get what they want? And how do we respond to a country which thinks that it can essentially make the world do as it wants by economic power rather than military? China is not militarily particularly powerful, but economically, clearly, it is. Do we want to live in a world where a one-party totalitarian state calls all the shots and we have to be grateful? Or do we want to find a way of peacefully and intelligently challenging that? And this current crisis has certainly shone a light on how the world can cooperate and how it hasn't. So when we find out more about the origins of COVID-19, it will be very interesting to see how people take sides. China is using its economic power to stack up votes at the United Nations. Um, President Trump believes that it's also manipulating the World Health Organization. I haven't looked at that, but it's plausible. I wouldn't go any further than that because I don't know what the answer is. But China is a serious problem because it's not militarizing its power. Uh, Imperial Germany went military because it, it simply couldn't compete economically, ultimately. Russia always went military because it had a surplus of, of military power and, and very little else. So the Russians were never going the economic route. And at the moment, China and Russia are collaborating because Russia needs the money and China needs the oil. Now, but at some stage, Russia will collapse and the Chinese will probably asset strip it. So the United States needs to have a position on this because the penalty of being the other superpower in the world is that you do have to have a position on everything. Smaller states can step aside and say, well, actually, that's, that's not our issue. So we need to address China's attempt to close down ocean, oceanic navigation, the freedom of navigation operations in the Western Pacific Basin. It's not the South China Sea because it doesn't belong to China. It's the Western Pacific Basin. And if we use the right terminology, we can undermine a lot of uh, the Chinese claims. We need to understand that China has never had a maritime culture ever and that its relationship with the sea has always been strikingly negative. And the Communist Party is no more keen on the sea than the Manchu governments of the 19th century. The sea is a dangerous alien place which you can't control and, or tax, and therefore it's not very interesting. So the sea is, I think, at the heart of that challenge. The global maritime domain needs to be 
coherent and consistent. And we need to have a position as a collection of nations, which enables us to call the Chinese out when they do things like seizing other people's territory, shutting down the liberties of, of Hong Kong against in violation of the treaty they signed in 1997 and other such things. Because otherwise, we'll get picked off one by one. And you know, it looked, for example, at the beginning of the current presidency that your president was quite keen on being a pal with the dictator of China. I suspect that's probably not, not the case now. Um, we need to be more consistent and we need to think about what our values are and how far we're prepared to compromise on those for economic prosperity. Because economic prosperity and, and further onward progress is going to come at a cost. And the other big problem we face is the one that this pandemic has exposed. We live in a world which is grievously overpopulated with humans. You know, we are consuming the planet. And we have to take some rather more dramatic decisions than the ones we've taken so far. You know, we need to arrest the growth in, in population, the expansion of, of the destruction of habitat and the consumption of the planet. And it's very difficult from advanced Western countries to tell less advanced that they didn't cut down their natural resources the way we all did. In our case, a thousand years ago, in case of parts of the US, a couple hundred years ago. Um, you're going to have to read a, a very painful lesson to countries that would like to do the same. So we need some leadership, and a lot of that leadership will need to be intellectual, and it will come from the exchange of ideas between many different maritime actors because they're connected. And it's the connection that's the really important thing, and keeping that connection alive and keeping the connection with the, the parts of the American political system, its core values and the way it operates, and making sure that the United States is on the, the sea power side of the argument. because. Otherwise, the sea powers will just get eaten up one by one. And you know what it looks like. Gradually, countries become effectively economic satellites of economic hegemon of China. This great railway project the Chinese are building from, from China right across Central Asia into Western Europe. The, the intention is to close down the internet in all of those countries, to saddle them with huge amounts of debt. So they end up essentially as, as feudal subjects of the Chinese emperor. This is the tribute system. The world would go to Beijing and give tribute to the emperor. And if you don't believe me, in the great museum of the people in Tiananmen Square, right opposite the hall where they meet for their annual greetings, most of the things on display are gifts that were brought to the emperors by the satellite kingdoms beyond China, elaborate rather garish things that were given to the emperor. And then you move from the imperial phase of China's history through the slightly disturbed phase of, of warlordism and, and civil war, and you get into the communist era. And most of the things are gifts that were brought to the Chinese emperor, who was then called Mao Zedong. Nothing changed. The Chinese worldview didn't change. The political system changed. The continuity is far greater than the change. As a consequence, the Chinese revolution is a slightly more efficient way of running the same empire. So we just had that interview with Dr. Andrew Lambert. I hope you really enjoyed it. I know I did. I think that he brings sort of a unique perspective in the way that we look at naval power and sea power and the way that it has sort of shaped, you know, geopolitics over the last 2000 years. I think that sea power and naval power sort of have different concepts and definitions, especially when you look at naval power in terms of having a large ocean going Navy that can sort of influence geopolitics in all these different 
places and sea power, which is sort of dominating trade routes, that sort of thing. So I think that's something that sort of is distinguishable. And his book, he really goes into this because in many ways, sea power states were shaped by the interaction with different cultures and different states and different people and different religions and all of that. Whereas these large military land powers were often sort of confined to the land that they were able to conquer. While Rome was kind of able to build a navy from scratch and relied heavily on its navy to you know, control the Mediterranean and all that, it certainly didn't have the capacity or the guts, so you could call it, to sort of go beyond what some of the other sea power states did. Now, I think from the perspective of looking from the 21st century moving forward, I wonder how both sea power and naval power are going to shape geopolitics heading forward. If you think about really ever since the end of World War II, the United States has had you know, the world's preeminent navy. I think, you know, I think that if there's one statistic that always stands out, I think the navy, the U.S. Navy has 11 or 13 aircraft carriers, and the next closest one is two. And while there are different navies trying to catch up, obviously China and different countries that sort of see and see power as becoming more important than ever, especially in a globalized world. But obviously, I think COVID's probably going to put a hold on that. But obviously, I think hopefully once COVID ends, I wonder how if our perceptions of naval power and sea power are going to change the result of COVID and the over-reliance on you know, overseas supply chains, whether it costs us shipping and whatnot, all those sorts of things. And if I, if I think about, and sea power states don't necessarily exist today in the way that they have in the past, obviously, because everywhere is a country, it's a state, it isn't necessarily a place that someone can go and conquer and just take, because obviously that's not the way that the modern world works. But I think sea power states offer a unique perspective in the way that cultures are shaped, in the way that geopolitics are shaped, and how policy is driven by sort of the geographical areas that states are founded in, especially with Athens, for example, right there in the Mediterranean, with Carthage right there in the Mediterranean, with Spain, right along you know, the Atlantic Ocean, obviously with the United States has been shaped heavily by both the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. So you have all these different things. And I think this is sort of an area that I really want to get into more depth in, but I think this is a great introductory episode into how you know sea power states sort of shape geopolitics and how it's really had an important impact on history. So I won't talk too much more. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Uh, and we'll definitely be coming out with some more great episodes over the next couple of weeks. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end. And thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.